The biggest holiday of the year in Greece is Easter. The first thing we do during resurrection is we hit each other's eggs. Coming up, find out how Orthodox Greeks back in the old country observe the season in ways you probably won't recognize even if you're Catholic or Protestant. Three of our favorite tour guides from England help you plan a visit to the nicest gardens and cathedrals and smaller towns and lesser-known attractions east and north of London. It includes a popular replica of a Victorian coal town near Durham. Nobody wears dirty clothes. <laughs> and nobody dies of rickets no. either. And one of Mexico's top authors explains the paradox that Mexicans live with. We live like in two different countries at the same time. It is a country that sometimes resembles apocalypse and sometimes resembles carnival. Easter in Greece, vacations in England, and a view of Mexico from the other side of the fence. It's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. He's often described as one of the most important writers living in Mexico today. Coming up in the hour ahead, meet Juan Vioro. You won't want to miss his perspective on the issues facing the citizens of Mexico and his view on the often tense relations with their neighbor to the north, the USA. Also, a trio of touring experts from England joins us to take your calls to help you plan a vacation. They can recommend attractions you're sure to enjoy. This time, we'll concentrate on the charming towns and countryside of the north and east of England. Do you like second chances? Since Eastern Orthodox churches use the older Julian calendar, in some years, like this one, their Easter Sunday occurs weeks later than the date observed by Catholics and Protestants. We've invited our Greek friend Anastasia Gaitanou to today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves to fill us in on the many traditions the Greeks observe at Easter time and what makes it worth the wait. Anastasia, it's nice to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. How is the Orthodox Easter distinct from the Western Easter? the Greek Orthodox Easter? Well, first of all is the date. And it's the way we calculate when it has to be. So the it could be on a different day than the Western Easter. It can Easter. be on a different date. There is a reason, of course, because Easter is always the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox, which is just simply the beginning of spring. But because that's always on a different date, then conventionally it's considered to be the 21st of March. So we're using the old calendar for Christmas. The West is using the new calendar for Christmas. So There's a 13 days difference. Two different calendars. So each year it could be sometimes the same day, sometimes uh, on a different week. Yeah, because if you have a full moon during the 13 days, then you have a different day. If not, then not. In Greece, talk about the big picture of Easter. When, does, when do things start even ramping up for Easter? Well, I would say already at Christmas. <laughs> you know, because we have Christmas time, we have the nativity, we have the great celebrations. And then after Christmas time, you have three weeks of really a lot of celebrating and festivities, which we call apokriya, which is practically carnival. Hmm. We call it like that because during the first two weeks, you're allowed to eat meat. On the last week, you're not, is the cheese week, as we call it. And apokriya means no meat. In, in the West, we have like a Mardi Gras, Fat hmm. Tuesday. Where... It's the preparation practically for the big Lent. So you start yeah. cutting <laughs> what you will not eat during the big Lent Okay, so, so big East. party time, eat everything, and then preparing for Easter, we have Lent. Yeah. And in Greece, how would Lent be treated among the faithful Greek Orthodox? Well, if you really do everything, then you do not eat whatever has blood. So during the Great Lent, you cannot eat meat, fish, dairy products, eggs. You can eat everything else, and there is no limitation in the amount. So you're not going to starve. 
No, you're definitely not going to starve. <laughs> but if and you like meat and fish, you're in I, trouble for 40 years. I personally days. put on weight during the Great Land because there are amazing things that you can eat that do not contain any meat at all. Such as? Such as, well, there are lots of uh, recipes with vegetables. Uh-huh. And, and we, we use a lot of olive oil. Oh, yeah. And even if you just eat a salad... And then you just take the bread, this great bread, and you just dip it in that mm. mixture of olive oil and tomato mm. juice that drips, and you just get fat. Very simple. <laughs> I can just I thinking of the fat. just thinking of the olive oil and the bread in Greece makes yeah. me want to dip oh, in. The last thing also you you eat before the Great Lent is an egg, and the first thing you eat after the Great Lent is an egg as well. It helps you adjust your stomach, but. There is a symbolism, because there's always symbolism. The egg is a very old symbol that symbolized the world. In the Christian tradition, it symbolizes the tomb of, of Jesus. And there is a life in there that could develop if the situation would prove to be the proper one. Now, is that relating to the, the painted eggs and the eggs that children Absolutely. enjoy at Easter time? Well, we enjoy painting the eggs. Usually they're red, although now we do have various colors but the red because of the passion of Christ and the blood of Christ. Okay. And the first thing we do during resurrection is we hit each other's eggs, and we call it the egg tapping or egg knocking, however you want to call it. And uh, the person hitting the eggs says Christ has resurrected, and the other then has to answer, yes, indeed. So, And the idea is knocking the egg, hitting the egg, cracking the egg, so the life can, in quotation marks, hatch. Out of the egg. I like that. And the last one who gets his has his egg whole will have luck for the rest of the year. Great. So now when we travel in Greece, we can experience these kind of festivities. Would you be more likely to see the festivities in Thessaloniki or Athens, or would you go to a small town? You see them everywhere. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Easter in Greece, and we're joined by Anastasia Gaitanu from Thessaloniki. I'd like to mm-hmm. roll back a little bit. Let's talk okay. about the, the Passion. That's the last okay. week. And we'll start with uh, Palm Sunday. First of all, how do you say Easter in Greek? Pascha. Pascha. Can you walk us through the whole the week, the Holy Week, starting from yes. Palm Sunday? It starts on Palm Sunday. We go to the church. Usually there's a blessing of the palm leaves there. There is a, a mass in the church. And that is practically the beginning of the, the Holy And this is uh, in the Bible. This is when Jesus entered Jerusalem and everybody was out with the palm fronds. Exactly. So then on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there is not really that much going on, apart, of course, from liturgies, masses and all of that. Every Mm -hmm. day is dedicated to something else. Mm -hmm. But the actual thing where everybody participates starts on Thursday, Hmm. where usually the women will decorate the so-called epitaph, that is, a table with a canopy then symbolizing the tomb of Jesus. And that will be decorated with flowers, usually roses or carnations, white, pink, and red. And there will be a picture of Jesus then either on the cross or usually then afterwards, then after he was removed from the cross. And on Friday, then there is, in the morning, the removal from the cross. Mm-hmm. There is a procession before that. Mm-hmm. And then there is a removal of the cross where the cross or Jesus, of course a painting, will be then wrapped in a shroud and will be placed on that epitaph, which is his tomb. And then that will be in the church and people go there to pay their respects. We bow in front of that, we cross ourselves because that's the tomb of Jesus. Mm -hmm. 
This is Good Friday you were talking about. This is Good about. Friday, yes. Is there a sort of a ceremonial burial of Christ on Good Friday? Yes, there is. There is a procession during the liturgy. They will take the epitaph out with, of course, a lot of chanting and singing and uh, candles and all of that. But this light you should not take back home with you okay. because this is a light of grief and that brings bad luck. And then on Saturday, waiting for the resurrection, what happens? What happens is the resurrection then is celebrated in Jerusalem. First, and there we get the holy light, which the patriarch, and the patriarch is one of the very high priests in the Orthodox Church, the patriarch of Jerusalem goes into the tomb of Jesus, that's the church of uh, Sepulchre, and he's holding a, oh, he holds a bundle of 33 candles. Oh, this is actually in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem the church of the yes. Holy Sepulchre, and this would be a Greek Orthodox priest picking yes. up the candle, the flame. So he goes in with that, he picks up the flame that just, you mm-hmm. know, animates there. And that is distributed to everybody. And there is a special flight, always, that brings that light to Athens. They fly this candlelight yes, all the do. way from Jerusalem to Athens. Because that's a part of the holy divine light. That, wow. is, that is a part of God. Uh-huh. And we believe that God is light. Every soul of every believer, every Christian is a part of that light. It's a small flame. So that's a part of this divine light. So that is flown to Athens. And then at midnight... The resurrection happens, that particular light comes out of the church, all all the rest of the lights are off, you know, and no candles, nothing. And that comes out and it's distributed to everybody and that light you get back home with you. And that brings good luck for the whole year. Of course, you get that light only in Athens. In all the rest of the churches, right. the priest himself will light the candles, but still it's the blessed light. And that's basically the the highlight of the Easter celebration? It is the highlight. We're learning about the symbolism behind the many distinctive traditions of a Greek Orthodox Easter. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Anastasia Gaitanu. Now, I would imagine there's plenty of wonderful feasts and and big dinners and relatives and family and friends gathering together. Well, Easter is again a family reunion. And many go back to their villages There we have more space. And more space than to put a whole lamb on a skewer. So people go from the big cities back to their home villages? Usually, yes. Okay. So it's really a big spit, and then you put the lamb on it, and you have to start very early, 6 o'clock in the morning, because differently you won't eat till midnight. <laughs> start really very, very early. And it can be a goat, can be a lamb. Lamb is traditional, it has to do with the Bible again. <laughs> but um, you have the lamb, you have the soup that you eat on Saturday evening, and it's a soup deliberately because... You have been fasting for 40 days, 48 days. Oh, so you're actually. breaking so, out of your fast. And what is this so, soup exactly? So you have exactly? To, to prepare your stomach for whatever is going to come on the next day. And that is a soup that has a lot of greens mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. It has the liver of the lamb you're going to eat on the next day. Mm. And some put just the liver, some also entrails. It depends on what you like. So lots of greens and lamb guts. Yeah. And at the end, you also have that sauce that's lemon and egg whipped. Mm-hmm. And it's really Great. Mm. And then on the next day, of course, you have the lamb with lots of other things <laughs> and go with. So when we have uh, Thanksgiving, we have turkey leftovers for many days after. Do you have lamb leftovers after Easter? Oh, yes, you do. So it's lamb time. Lots of lamb. Absolutely. <laughs> and of course, then the, the children are very happy because it's two weeks vacation. Again, no school. Then they have the Easter eggs. Then if you have a godchild, you would go then before resurrection because the godfather or the godmother has to bring the candle for the child. So it has okay. to be before Saturday, or at least till Saturday noon. Mm-hmm. You know? 
and you bring a big chocolate egg. Now, so the godparents bring their godchild a chocolate egg or some gift. Yeah, and a gift. And a gift. Yes, oh, they're very demanding own. nowadays. <laughs> and you also get your Easter bread from the parents of the godchild. Uh, and the Easter bread is sweet, not very sweet. Usually it has a red egg on it and it's braided, you know. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Anastasia Gaitanu about celebrating Easter in Greece. Anastasia, when you think back to your childhood, just let's finish with one of your favorite memories, an intimate little memory when you were a little girl celebrating Easter in Greece. Well, I was always really fond of those reunions. And I remember being um, a child and trying to avoid to have to turn the lamb on the spit. And, but I would always try to sneak from behind and try to you know, cut a small piece oh. as the lamb was turning. And that was the most delicious part of the lamb ever. Sneaking a little piece of the lamb right off the spit. Yeah. When mom and dad were not looking. Exactly. Or, you know, they were looking, but they were, yeah. Let Anastasia have a special moment yeah. with the lamb on the spit. <laughs> Anastasia Gatanu, thank you very much. How do you wish somebody uh, in Greece uh, a blessed holiday, Easter, or whatever? Well, we would say happy Easter, and that would be Kalo Pascha. Kalo Pascha. Yeah. Ephesto. Parakalo. One of Mexico's most celebrated authors describes the paradoxes of life in his country and shares his perspective on its relationship with its big neighbor to the north. That's a little later this hour on Travel with Rick Steves. Up next, we get insider advice to help you plan the perfect holiday to the English countryside. We're at 877-333-7425. London is a grand old town, but if you're planning to visit England, be sure to include plenty of time to enjoy sights further away from the busy pace of the big city. Joining us for expert advice on what you can experience this year in the countryside of England are three certified Blue Badge guides who make their homes there. Roy Nichols lives in Dorset, that's in the rural southwest, and Tom Hooper and Gillian Chadwick live in and near London. They make their living taking visitors all across England and they're here to help you plan a great getaway to England. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Tom, Jillian, Roy, thanks for being here. You're very well. Lovely to be here. Susan's calling in from Barberton in Ohio. Susan, have you been traveling lately, and where are your travel dreams taking you? We haven't been traveling lately, but we are looking forward to our first European trip this summer. All right. We're going to be going to England in May, and I want to be prepared for it. The place we're going is Norwich in East Anglia. It's where my cousin's living for a couple years, so we're going to go visit. And so I wondered about getting from Gatwick out to Norwich, traveling around Norwich, and then how much time should we allow in East Anglia versus London, you know, and other places, not giving up too much time to travel time. So you're visiting family in East Anglia. First of all, where is East Anglia? Just to the north of London. It's uh, Norfolk and Suffolk. Would this be bedroom communities for London, people commuting in, or is it's it its own world? To a certain extent, yeah, to a degree. 
Yeah. It's quite a long commute. What are, what are the big uh, attractions of East Anglia for the typical tourist? The Fens, the Broads, the Norfolk Broads. Okay, the Fens. Now, this is an area that was sort of, it feels like Holland. It's got irrigation yeah. designed by Dutch engineers oh, who came correct. over. Yeah, yeah. drain, uh, very fertile, very lots of pigs. So what would be the big cultural center of East Anglia? Norwich. 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 Okay, that's where yeah. Susan's going. What's yeah. in Norwich to see? Lots it's got churches. a wonderful cathedral, yeah. yes. and very as Gillian switched, says, yeah. lots of lovely churches. Good very, shops, the market. Very switched on cathedral. Very go-ahead cathedral. Mm. And it's the home of Coleman's Mustard as well. Coleman's Mustard. That's where it So was if you're going to have a picnic in Norwich in front of the cathedral, you've mm. got your Coleman's you Mustard. You can go to the Coleman's Mustard shop. There you go. Susan, does that give you a few ideas? Yeah, and, and what's the best way to get from Gatwick Airport you'd, out you'd, to Norwich? You'd have to get the train from Gatwick to London and then cross London to another station, I think Liverpool Street. Liverpool, Liverpool yeah. Street, yeah. So to remember, go. Gatwick is the airport that's halfway to the south coast from yep. London, and you're going north of London, so mm. you will have easy shuttles into London from Gatwick. You just hop on the train. Okay, and, and then traveling around East Anglia, because I do want to go to Cambridge and other places there. Um, do you think renting a car, a car to get around? You need to hire a car. So it's a consensus here with all three of our yeah, guides. Rent, rent a car, definitely. Rent a car. And it's nice to get out to Norwich by public transportation because it's faster and easier to get there than driving from Gatwick, I would say. Yeah. And then pick it up in the smaller town, De- Norwich. Definitely pick it up in Norwich. Don't hire it at Gatwick and then drive up. Okay. And how many days should we allow out there versus London or maybe Bath? It's a very difficult because ah, it's the eternal question, how long is a piece of string? Because there is so much to see in, in Norfolk and Suffolk. You know, within a couple of hours' drive of Norwich, you've got the Norfolk coast. As we were saying earlier, the Norfolk broads, you've got uh, Roman sites, but for Castle the, Rising. For the typical tourist, you'd find more... A, a couple of days. A couple I still of say days, a couple of days, yeah, really. But then it's almost like a, a curse and a blessing to have family you've got to stay with because it's great to have family, but you don't want to spend your whole English time there at the expense of getting out yeah. to see what you really might want to see it beyond does, Norwich. It does have some quite remarkable villages yeah. that you'll definitely see as well with very yeah. oversized churches because of the wealth of the wool in the past. Because mm-hmm. that's what I remember. I keep thinking Lincoln because yeah. I, I was so impressed by the cathedral in Lincoln. And Ely is not that far from Ely is, yeah. Ely is gorgeous. Yeah. If you're going to Cambridge, Susan, I would definitely consider putting Ely in as well. Yeah. Okay, great. Susan, if you like church architecture, you're going to be in hog heaven. Mm. Ely has a very special feature, which is a lantern as part of the tower of the cathedral. Ho- and of the a great cathedral. thing about English uh, cathedrals and churches are the docents and the volunteers that are usually there, and they want you to ask them a question. They're busting yeah. with information and love of their history and art. Mm-hmm. So when you go into any town and they've got a docent or a, a guide at the desk, let them take you on a walk through the cathedral. And obviously Cambridge... Places like the Tourist Information Centre, they run tours, walking tours of Cambridge. So you'd want to spend at least a day, I think, at Cambridge. Okay. Susan, thanks for your call. Well, great, great. Thank you very much. You bet. Catherine's calling from Houston in Texas. Catherine, have you been to England lately, and what was your best memory? Hi, Rick. It's a delight to talk to you. We travel to England with our cathedral choir from Houston every three years. And we will be in residence at various places. And I was actually calling because we're traveling this July to Durham, where we'll be in residence for about four days. And I've been to England many times and sung in a number of cathedrals, but um, I've never been to Durham. So I was hoping you could recommend some sites or nearby activities that would be particularly interesting. 
That's a beautiful thing. Just right off the bat, I'll ask each of our guides their favorite site in or near Durham that might be a little unpredictable. Well, I would think of Durham Castle because it's actually, it's all part of the same sort of complex. Right there with the cathedral. Right with the cathedral. You can can kind of see the fortified beginnings of the town and the bend of the river. And and the castle is used by the university. There's a nice walk around the river. Catherine remembered that little walk. You know, for me, there's a place called Beamish Open Air Folk oh, Museum. Oh, yes. Beamish. Yeah. And yes. this was, uh, I'm a sucker for open air folk museums. Uh, how far of a drive, Roy, would it be? Oh, it's be? only an hour and a half. An hour and a half from Durham. You could go yeah. out to Beamish. And Catherine, Beamish, B-E-A-M-I-S-H. What is it? It's about a hundred-year-old. Uh, it's time it's, it's Victorian. It's, Victorian. It's, it's looking back to the nineteenth-century Victorian heyday of the Industrial Revolution. So it's recreating an industrial town from the late eighteen hundreds without, uh, without the smells, without the smells, and all of the charm, and all, all of, the charm. It's all yes. the charm and none of the bad. All the romantic charm, <laughs> and nobody dies of rickets no. either. So you no. can get an idyllic all, look at Victoria's all England, a ripe old age instead of twenty. <laughs> Beamish Open Air Folk Museum and Durham Castle and Durham Cathedral. And, of course, with your choir, uh, you'll have a beautiful experience sharing your music there. And I would mention, as you go around England, a lot of times the church choirs are on vacation or on leave in the summer, but it's when they open them up to visiting choirs choirs, from around the world. So you're likely to hear Catherine's choir from Houston at the Durham Cathedral. And that's a beautiful thing for the American traveling choirs to get that experience Mm -hmm. and for us as travelers to enjoy it. I imagine it's something that's... A memory for the whole of your life, I would think. Oh, it is. Be. You can't, you can't beat it. We sung at St. Paul's and York last trip was just. I just yeah. loved it. York is quite a special thing to be able to do. I, I think they are quite careful about who they choose, aren't they? They are, and so are Westminster Abbey and and St. Paul's. Yeah. We're very fortunate to be directed by someone who understands Anglican choral music very well, and so we're able to reproduce the English style of singing as much as possible for Americans. And they recognize that. That's that's pretty, yeah. pretty they do. great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Catherine, yeah. tell us what it's like in your choir from Texas, going to the greatest uh, minsters and cathedrals in England, uh, surrounded by all that heritage and history. Is it gratifying to perform there? Um, I've been singing all of my life, and choral music is my favorite mode of singing. And so to sing in a cathedral with acoustics like you have and with the history... It's beyond beautiful, and it's just as good as it gets. It is just sublime. Oh, it is sublime. Hey, Catherine, to what degree are the organs part of the whole musical experience? Oh, it's a large part, and it's interesting. From cathedral to cathedral, you'll have a difference in whether or how much the organist you bring with you is permitted to play. Really? Mm-hmm. Some of the cathedrals prefer to use their own organists. Uh-huh. For the entire thing, sometimes uh, the organist will be able to play a, a prelude or postlude, or perhaps the anthem, the the major piece of music that's sung. It's a big deal for me to enjoy an even song wherever I get a chance in in Britain. I think one of the missed opportunities is to hang around for the postlude, and I always get the sense that the organist really enjoys. It's sort of more relaxed, and the postlude is just like a victory lap after the worship service. What's your take on those organ postludes? I think they can be like that. It is a chance for the organist to shine, and, and obviously the pressure of the service is off. Right. It, it just goes better. It's just like uh, like anything, when, when the mics are off, when the camera's off, when, it when also it's seems just be, casual and fun. It also seems to be right with the atmosphere and the, I love it. And the building. It's sort of Yeah, it's u- using the building for what yeah. it was intended and the thought that it's been used that way for 800 years. Yeah. What's not nice like about that? Every day. And some of the music sounds 
like the way it's supposed to to be when you sing it in a cathedral. You go, oh, that's what it's supposed to sound like because that's you have it. you have the um, not what I'm echo <laughs> and the yeah you know, the deteriorating sound that may go on for three or four seconds. That we in in certainly in Texas we do not have that. We don't have access to that type of facility. And you hear the music then as it was designed to be sung and heard. That is beautiful. so. That is quite thrilling. It's sort of being uh, one with the architecture. The architecture and right in the and the composer and the mission of and the and church, all the performers right? and the mission of the church yeah, the and the tradition that's gone on, you know, sequentially these many um, hundreds of years. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Well, Catherine, best wishes with your uh, choral work and uh, enjoy you. your trip and thanks for your call. Yes. Thanks, I really appreciate the advice. It's a bet. pleasure. Great, take care. Tom Hooper, Roy Nichols, and Jillian Chadwick are helping us plan a getaway to England right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our number's 877-333-RICK. Scott's calling from Charleston, South Carolina. Scott, do you have some dreams of England coming up? I do indeed. My wife is a professor and has a sabbatical next fall, and we are planning on taking about a month to include northern and western England southern Scotland, and then spend about eight days in Ireland. But I wanted to focus, obviously, on the English piece. We've seen most of the of southern England and interested in primarily the Lake District, Durham, Lindisfarne. I want to go to, to Holy Island there at Lindisfarne and along Hadrian's Wall. But I wanted to hear uh, any other suggestions kind of in that part of England. My, my wife and I are both sort of art music and history buffs and uh, like to go to spiritual sites like cathedrals and monasteries and such. So anything in that part of hmm. northern and western England that would be advisable for, a, we'll probably take about a week for that leg of the trip. Sounds great. Well, let's get some insight from our guides here. Uh, we're thinking Lake District, Durham, Lindisfarne, Hadrian's Wall. What comes to mind? Well, the first thing that came to mind with Hadrian's Wall, it's not spiritual, but it's the, probably the best Roman site along that area. It's called Vindolanda, and they have a fabulous uh, museum there. And they're also, they're still excavating. It's really exciting. So I highly recommend that. And uh, I would say conceivably the best walk you could take would be along Hadrian's oh, Wall. Oh, definitely. I, I've just had a few opportunities to walk along Hadrian's Wall, Scott, and it is magnificent. Mm. Tom, any other thoughts? That's totally right. To, to walk a bit of Hadrian's Wall is a must. Mm. It yeah. took me 15 or 20 years before I realized yeah. that. And uh, just filming, we I wanted to get away from... I mean, there's wonderful forts and with the parking yes. lot and yeah. the little museum. That's great. But have a way to walk to the next town and then catch a bus back to your starting point or something. It mm-hmm. makes a lot of yeah. sense. And the, the bus is very easy. Right along Hadrian's yeah, Wall. Right along. Yeah, Hadrian's Wall is 122 AD and the bus is Route 122. There's Clever. B&Bs along the way and uh, plenty of beautiful pubs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what other advice uh, for Scott? Well, you're not too far to the south is, of course, the city of York with one of those beautiful cathedrals in Christendom. You've got the Yorkshire Dales and the Yorkshire Moors on your doorstep if you're staying in York for a couple of days. And if you want spiritual sites, it's home to some of the most beautiful abandoned abbeys, yes. places like Jervo and mm-hmm. Revo. Those are in stunningly. North York Moors, is that right? One is York? in the York Moors and one is in the Yorkshire Dales, but there are others, but those right. are the two most famous. And Fountains is those, also the other. Those two, again, are 
uh, Rivo and Jervo. Those are like French spellings. Yes, right? they, they were Cistercian monasteries, I think. And as Tom was saying, Fountains Abbey, which is actually Fountains is the other, the one in, the, in the Yorkshire Moors. Yeah, that's very good. And Scott, you like art, history, and music in York and in Durham. Uh, absolutely, make an even song service to enjoy. And the even song in Durham is in this incredible uh, Norman cathedral is is really something. Mm-hmm. I think the Lindisfarne visit you'll find particularly spiritual. Now talk it's about Lindisfarne, because this is, uh, what's the Christian history of that, and then what's the tide situation and well, everything? Well, first of all, yes, there is the tide situation, so, so it's you like have to make a, sure you cross the right time and not get stranded. But, you know, the Christian famous thing is the Lindisfarne Gospels. So um, what would you actually find on it's, Lindisfarne? It's predominantly ruined now, but there is a community there, and it's an astonishingly atmospheric site. Roy, how would you enjoy Lindisfarne? Well, it, it's an early Christian site, uh, one of the earliest, and of course, connections with St. Cuthbert. St. Cuthbert and Durham, of course. Of course, and so they've got the connections with Durham as well, because that's where St. Cuthbert lived. Just go, make sure you check the tides, because it can actually affect your visit to mm. Lindisfarne, because you... to be able to drive across the island, it's only accessible as with the tide. And so you do really need to plan it in advance. And, and anybody in that near vicinity would know what the title situation yes, you, is. You, there is a number, I think, you can ring yeah. beforehand. Right. To check how, I, th- I think it's also on web as well now. Yeah. All right. Scott, you've got a lot of beautiful things to check out there in the north of England, and it's great that you're not stretching yourself too thin. Don't be tempted to add some of the Cotswolds or Edinburgh or anything like that. You've got to no, no, stay no. in that no, area. Not, yeah. not in this time. And if I, I may ask one yeah. other question as far as the transportation piece. Right. I'm, I'm thinking an open jaw trip because we're also going to Ireland. Perhaps I'm wondering if it would be better to fly into like Birmingham or, or Manchester rather than London mm-hmm. and then maybe fly out of Shannon because we want to do the west coast of Ireland as well or vice versa, do yeah. Ireland first. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. No point in Three going Three thumbs up on that. Yes. Stay out of London, use open jaw, meaning flying into one end of your trip yeah. to the other. Shannon's a great airport to fly out and, of. And Manchester's a very vibrant city if you haven't yeah. seen it as well. And I would say in the Lakes District, uh, Scott, the Lakes District is, is a big area, the Cumbrian Lake District. I think if you've got limited time, you need to choose north or south. And I just love making Keswick your base in the north. It's less touristy, and there's mm. a lot of beautiful walks and boat rides and so Ke- on. Keswick is a much more real town mm-hmm. than some of the other. Than Windermere. Than Windermere or, or mm. even Ambleside. Uh, unless you're just hell-bent on Beatrix Potter. Yeah. You don't need to go south. Mm. No. Good luck, Scott. Or it's worth, yes. Potter, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Have a good trip. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about traveling in England with our three wonderful English guides, Tom Hooper, Jillian Chadwick, and Roy Nichols. If we can just uh, sum up this fun conversation with just one last thought for all of our traveling listeners about enjoying your country. Tom? Don't just see the big set pieces. Get out and see the unusual and let things just happen sometimes rather than overplan. Let things just happen. Uh, that's something I can learn from. A lot of us think the more we plan, the better it's going to go. But sometimes... Go with the serendipity. Chilean. I think the best time to travel to England is May because you have all the blossoms and the flowers and everything is just bursting with joy. And I I just love that time of year. And you can enjoy that in the countryside as well as London because London's got gorgeous parks. And when they're in bloom, it's really a delightful dimension of of London. Mm. And Roy. Finally, just to say that I'm going to give a plug for my part of the world, Dorset. It's so overlooked by Americans 
It's easy to reach from London. You can take the train down to places like Salisbury and down to Bournemouth. It's a beautiful county and it's got some beautiful countryside. So we're talking about two hours southwest of London? Two hours southwest, 130, 140 miles. And it's got some of the most beautifully, quintessentially English countryside. It has a spectacular coastline. Mm. Spectacular, the Jurassic Coast. It does. And what are the natives like there? We're generally friendly. Generally generally friendly. (laughs) Dorset welcome. (laughs) All right, Roy, Gillian, Tom, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Welcome. Welcome. You can read what other travelers recommend about visiting England in the web boards on the ricksteves.com website. There's a link to the travel form on the front page. If you prefer visiting a sunnier climate, Mexico is a great choice. However, news coverage of crime and corruption have terrified many Americans into steering clear of Mexico. Up next, one of Latin America's most respected authors brings us a perspective you won't often find in American media on the issues they're dealing with in Mexico and on its relationship with the United States. Juan Vioros, our guest next on Travel with Rick Steves. You have the right to imagine things different. That's what Juan Vioros says he encourages his readers to do. His novels, stories, and articles are laced with a wicked sense of humor and irony. And he's often described as one of the most important writers and social critics coming out of Mexico City today. His father, Luis Vioro, was a highly respected philosopher and academic. Juan is part of a committee that's writing a new constitution for Mexico City. They're tasked with safeguarding the rights of the citizens of the Mexican capital as it gains a self-governing status already enjoyed by the other 31 states in Mexico. The first translation of his fiction has just been released in the United States and Canada, so he's starting to develop a following north of the border, too. It's our privilege to have Juan Vioro join us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to share a perspective on Mexico that we rarely find in American media. Juan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me here. It's great for us to have a chance just to talk about perceptions between the United States and Mexico, because... Being from the United States, it's always you know the United States perspective that wires my outlook. You've written a book called The Guilty, and now, as a social commentator and so on, this is translated into English. What do you hope uh, your book, The Guilty, can have as an impact on American perspectives of Mexico? Well, it's always difficult to uh, know what a country can expect from another country. Mexico and the United States, we share the border with most crossings in the world, and it's the biggest uh, border between the so-called first world and the third world. But many of these uh, crossings are illegal, and uh, people die there. No, The border patrol uses this uh, PC expression, uh, the body count, to speak about the corpses that are found in the border. So we have a, a very strong relationship, but sometimes this uh, relationship is uh, under peril of uh, misunderstandings. And so in my short story collection, The Guilty, I try to address these issues. For example, there's a story about an American journalist who goes down to Mexico looking for adventures and wild stories. Uh, the story is called Amigos Mexicanos, Mexican Friends. And I remember a letter that uh, Jack Kerouac wrote to William Burroughs when Burroughs was already living in Mexico. And Kerouac wanted to go there, but he was afraid of uh, Mexico because he had heard that it was 
quite a violent play. So he asked his good friend Bill Burroughs, uh, what do you think? Is it going to be too wild for me? I am going to be under peril in Mexico. And famously, uh, Burroughs answered, don't worry, Jack. Mexicans, they only kill their friends. <laughs> so this story is about this kind of very particular Mexican friendship and the story of an American journalist who goes down to Mexico and he wants to research wild stories. He wants to meet a violent country so that he can, he can write a, a very spectacular piece for the American press. And uh, strangely enough, he had a great time in Mexico and nothing strange happens. So he finds a normal kind of country. There's a lack of information for him. So a bunch of uh, guys, his Mexicans friends, try to enact some kind of violence for him. So they do a kind of performance so that he can uh, write about a wild life. But this kind of wild life is only a representation. So through this story, I was trying to address these kinds of misconceptions. What do you expect of a country? And some people, they go to Mexico trying to have these terrible adventures and these wild experiences. And strangely enough, nothing of the sort happens to them. You know, I've been told that there's like a separate country, the swath of land along the border, which would have a different atmosphere from a safety and a law and order point of view. And then when you go farther south, that changes. Uh, what is your take on that one? Well, that's true. For example, if you go to uh, northern Mexico, there is a kind of a special country that we can call Mex-America. It's a mixture of Mexico and the United States, a place in which you can speak Spanglish and in which you have influences of both countries. It's no surprise that the most common name nowadays in California is Jose Hernandez. That's the most common name, Jose. And for example, on Super Bowl Sunday, the second most popular snack uh, was uh, guacamole after French fries. You have this kind of mixture of cultures in daily life. But at the same time, if you go to that part of Mexico, the northern part, next to the border to the United States, you find people hoping to go to the American dream and hoping to achieve a way to find a job in the States. So now we share this situation in which there are a lot of people, mm -hmm. thousands of them, expecting to find a job here. And jobs are available for many of them but the crossings remain illegal, which is an absurd situation. We're honored today on Travel with Rick Steves to be joined by author and social critic Juan Vioro. He's been called Mexico's most prolific prize-winning author, playwright, journalist, and screenwriter. He's won prestigious awards in Latin America and Europe. His first book, translated into English, is a collection of seven of his postmodern short stories. It's called The Guilty. When I think about other countries like France, there are regions in France that are called profoundly French. You know, Mex-America, that would be not profoundly Mexican, I, I wouldn't think. If you're looking for the profoundly Mexican part of Mexico, where would you go and, and why? Well, I think there is nothing like a typical Mexican. It's very difficult to find somebody that is quintessentially Mexican. I mean, nowadays we are informed through many influences. One of the stories in uh, The Guilty is called Mariachi. As you may know, the Mariachi is the token of Mexican music. So he's the hero of the ranchera songs. And here you have a Mariachi who is a symbol of identity, 
with an identity crisis. Mm -hmm. I wanted to address that, that, that thing because there's nothing like a, a typical Mexican, the token of uh, identity, but we still have a sense of belonging. Right. So it's probably a misperception among people from the United States that uh, Mexico would be so uniform, and it's probably just as diverse as America or even more so. Probably exactly. More so. You have an American like Bob Dylan, and you mm -hmm. have an American like Donald Trump. It's, yeah. it's difficult to to think that both of them belong to the same country, but they do belong to the same country. country. Now, I'm a little bit awkward when I'm talking to Mexicans because I refer to myself as an American, and you live in the continent of America, so you kind of are an American too. If I call myself an American, does that offend you, or do we get that term? We are used to it, and uh, we also belong to America. And sometimes we're offended when people speak about Mexicans as being South Americans, <laughs> because we are in North America as well. Are these good times in Mexico or difficult times? I mean, oh I, no, terrible times! It's a right. very difficult situation. What, what's so well, difficult because, right now? You know, we had the same party in power for seventy-one years, the PRI. And after this party, for the first time in the in the year 2000, we had uh, free elections and uh, another party, the PAN, National Action Party, they won the elections. It's a conservative party. And for the first time, there was hope that things were going to change. But these politicians were even worse than the PRI. So they remained for 12 years in power. And then the arch rival of democracy, this party, the PRI, that held power for 71 years, returned to power. And, well, we live in a very corrupt society, and now we have an economic crisis due to the fall of the oil prices. Mm -hmm. and because Mexico, a lot of, Mexico is mm -hmm. traditionally a big oil producer, so you're taking yes. a hit now with oil prices going down. Juan, if I'm complaining about American government, I would probably think that a problem is that corporations have too much influence because with their money they can buy a bigger voice at the table. In Mexico, if you were to complain about, because you say bad government, is it because of corporate interests over people's interest, or is it because of simple corruption where somebody becomes a politician and they personally get very wealthy? Well, there is corporate influence in politics, but you know, our biggest problem is the influence of organized crime. Mm. And uh, that's the main issue in Mexico. And organized crime can only work in a society if it invades regions of the society like um, the police department, the army, mm. and, of course, most of the majors and uh, politicians wow. in, in so Mexico. Wow, so organized crime is actually infiltrating uh, these aspects yes, of society? Yes, that's the worst thing about it. And that would relate to drugs also, drug oh, industry? Yes, of course, drug dealing, because okay. we were talking about the border, and the United no. States are the biggest consumers in the world, and okay. we are the biggest sellers. And that's just a sort of a dynamic that has a life of its own. We're talking about perceptions, and Americans have this very strong perception that we're being invaded by Mexicans coming north. But I understand that there's been no net immigration to the United States from Mexico for five or six years. What is the real situation apart from the perception created by commercial news coverage? When you have a lack of opportunities in Mexico and in Central America, the United States tend to be the goal for achieve a better job. So that's a problem of Mexico and Central America. 
but that's a problem of the United States as well. So they are migrants who are going all the way from Guatemala, Honduras, to the United States through Mexico. And we Mexicans, we complain that our paisanos, the people of Mexico who are living here in the United States, that they are treated badly. But we do treat terribly the Central Americans who go through our country trying to achieve a better life situation in the United States. So we have to address this issue as a complex one involving many countries. And uh, the hypocrisy in this mm -hmm. uh, issue and the official rhetoric of Mexico, for example, has been that we want to protect our citizens that are being treated badly in the States. But at the same time, there are no jobs for them in Mexico. So we have to transform our society because nowadays it is a society that is forcing people to find a better life situation abroad. Juan, do you think that there's a potential, if, if an American is very threatened by these Mexicans looking for jobs coming into the United States, would possibly a good approach to this challenge from the United States be having trade policies that help Mexico have more jobs south of the border? Is, is that a potential solution? That's a potential solution for the United States, for Mexico, and for many countries in the world. If you think about what's happening in Europe nowadays, I mean, the solution is to find better economical situations in the countries that are forcing people to go to Europe. That would be a solution. At the same time, it would be very, very important to legalize jobs here in the United States. It has mm -hmm. become common that there are many Mexicans working here. Uh, they are used to it in the United States. They need that kind of work, but we have to legalize the situation because it's absurd to have so many people from other countries working here in a land of immigration and not having a legal situation for them. Right. Now, there's a very, very popular politician these days here in the United States, and he brings roars of happiness out of his followers when he says, we'll just build a wall and we'll make <laughs> Mexico pay for it. How does that sound if you're down in Mexico City when you hear this uh, politician, Trump, um, talking about building a wall? And yes. not only building a wall, but making Mexico pay for it. What's the feeling about that south of our border? We're worried about this, and we're also worried about uh, the reaction towards Trump because he has become very popular, and for half a year, he has been the most popular Republican candidate. So he can achieve power, and this rhetoric, which is fanatic and uh, it's absurd because it doesn't take into account the richness of our relationship between uh, two countries that share this kind of border, it's uh, look like something that's uh, quite uh, fascist. So we are deeply worried about the possibility of uh, Donald Trump winning the election. So to you, that sounds quite fascist. And complementing that feeling or political agenda and other politicians have expressed this also, of just moving 12 million undocumented Mexican laborers out of the country back into Mexico. What would happen if 12 million out-of-work Mexicans were somehow shipped from the United States back into Mexico? What would happen to Mexico? Well, that's a very good question because that would be terrible for Mexico, but I think that would be terrible for America as well because uh, these people are doing things here that are needed. They are not homeless people in the streets. All of them, they are hardworking people. 
So what's going to happen if, for example, all the gardeners in California or the caretakers, most of them are Mexicans, what is going to happen if these people, they have to go back to Mexico? So the absurd situation is that we need each other and we have to accept this and we have to find a legal solution for this. Juan Vior is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He's one of the most well-respected authors in Mexico today. A collection of his short stories called The Guilty has just been released in English. Now it's available in the United States and Canada. It includes a story called Amigos Mexicanos. It's about an American journalist who hires the story's narrator in Mexico City to, as Juan writes, escort him through a city he deemed savage and explain things he deemed mythical. Juan, when we think about Mexico, this is a travel show. People love to travel to Mexico. But a lot of people are losing sleep over the safety issue because we hear about killings along the border and the drug war and so on. If we could just make a comment about how an American can travel safely in Mexico and, and what is the reality compared to the perception? Well, it's uh, very difficult to make uh, an advertisement of Mexico nowadays if you think about the whole country. There are a lot of unsafe places in Mexico, but if you avoid the northern states, the Gulf states, uh, you still have spots in which you can uh, travel pretty safely. For example, I'm thinking about Oaxaca, which is a wonderful place, or San Miguel Allende, a place in which a lot of Americans live. And um, of course, Mexico City itself is quite safe place. So you can still travel around and you can still have a decent life in Mexico. You know, mm -hmm. the paradox is that we live like in two different countries at the same time. It is a country that sometimes resembles apocalypse and sometimes resembles carnival. Mm -hmm. And the, the strangest thing is that sometimes you have both of these situations at the same time, a carnival inside the apocalypse. So you have to be a aware of where are you going in order to avoid apocalyptic situations and trying to, to share all the pleasure of being in a country with such a cultural richness like Mexico. Mm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Juan Vioro. And Juan's book is The Guilty, a collection of short stories helping us get a better understanding of Mexican culture from a Mexican perspective. Juan, if you could just sum up, if I'm a traveler coming down to Mexico and I, I want to gain a, an understanding of not tourist Mexico, not ancient Mexico, but today's Mexico. What's an activity that I would want to do where I could really learn about life from a Mexican perspective? Well, life from a Mexican perspective can be very interesting if you take the subway in Mexico City, because there you can find a mixture of modern and ancient Mexico in one of the biggest cities in the world. There are more than five million people who take the subway daily in Mexico, and there are pyramids in, in the subway, and uh, you can see uh, modern graffiti and modern artworks, but especially you can see the population on their earth. And maybe you will remember that all the Aztec myths start with somebody doing travel underground. So that's a postmodern way of address the ancient Mexican mythology. I think that's beautiful advice. Juan Vioro, thank you very much, and best wishes with your book, The Guilty. Thank you, Rick. Adios, adios, que le vaya bien. Adios, adios, que le lleve el tren. Adios, adios, que le vaya bien. Que le muerda un perro y le muerda bien. 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to KPLU Tacoma for studio help this week. Find more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next adventure in Great Britain or Ireland, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.